CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to wrap up another week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Welcome to the Friday edition of our show. Um, Big news about a variety of investigations into possible criminal activity by Donald Trump in both Washington and in Georgia dominates headlines again today. Uh, In Washington, federal judge has approved the redactions that DOJ uh, made in the affidavit they used uh, to get the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago. And there's some expectation that when the affidavit, even with the redactions, is released at some point today, uh, we will learn a bit more about what the Department of Justice has in mind in terms of the documents that Donald Trump uh, had not turned over to the National Archives as he was supposed to. Um, We'll see how that develops through the day today, but there's also an awful lot of activity uh, right here in Georgia um, in terms of Fonnie Willis's special grand jury investigating possible criminal wrongdoing by Trump and his associates in their efforts to overturn the Georgia election. And that's where I think uh, I'd like to uh, start today's show. So let me introduce the panel. Jim Galloway is with me as he is on Fridays. You know Jim is the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jim, thanks for being with us. No, sometimes you just have to kind of step back and realize what the, the, the extraordinary times that we live in. Whoever thought we would have a Fulton County grand jury investigation that reaches into the White House? Yeah, it, it is extraordinary, and we're going to talk more about just that in a minute. Stephen Fowler is here. He's political reporter for uh, Georgia Public Broadcasting, and um, his uh, podcast, Ballot Box, uh, Battle Box, tell me the name of the, the I always get it backwards, Stephen. Battleground Ballot Battleground Box. Battleground Ballot Box. Thank you. I apologize for that. It's a terrific podcast, Stephen, and I apologize that I sometimes get the words uh, turned around. Uh, Maya King. Uh, who's a politics reporter for the New York Times, working out of Atlanta, is uh, with us again today. A little later in the show, uh, Maya, we're going to talk about what I thought was a terrific piece you wrote about Stacey Abrams' personal evolution on the issue of choice. So thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And joining this terrific panel of journalists is Karen Owen, professor of political science at the University of West Georgia, but now a dean at the university. So she has moved up to a management role at the university. And with that, Karen, uh, lots of new headaches. (laughs) Yes, there are some new headaches, but some joy in being able to be a part of uh, seeing the university's strategic plan move forward. So there's some goodness in this. Of of course there of course there is and and, and I was just uh, uh, trying to give you a hard time here. Let's get right to it. Um, Stephen Fowler, you know there are a lot of people, many Republicans, of course, who uh, think that Fonnie Willis is running a political investigation. There are even some Democrats who think that maybe she should be focused on criminal issue crime in Fulton County. But whether you agree with what she's doing or not, you've got to say she is fearless. Fonnie Willis has now issued a um, a version of a subpoena calling for Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's former chief of staff, to testify before her special grand jury. She's also issued the same uh, request for Sidney Powell, who we all saw took a lead in many of the uh, court actions that failed in trying to uh, overturn the results of the election. Well, what are the implications of the fact she's now reached just about the highest level at the White House, uh, uh, barring Trump himself? Well, so you have to think about all of the things that we don't know so far, and that's because the special purpose grand jury operates in closed door in secret, and that there are a lot of things that can be done, subpoenas and other things for people in Georgia that don't have to be publicly filed. The reason we know about Mark Meadows and Sidney Powell and Lindsey Graham and all these other things is that these uh, the certificates of material witness 
certification for need for testimony, you know, big legal term that basically when you ask for somebody that's not in Georgia to have to come testify before a grand jury, the DA has to write something up for a judge, the judge has to sign it, then that has to go to that person's home jurisdiction. So that's why we know about these public uh, requests that are being made to Sidney Powell and Mark Meadows. And so what we're being, what we're seeing with all of this is just a sweeping, sweeping probe of the post 2020 election time where Donald Trump and his allies tried unsuccessfully to overturn Georgia's election. And now we've seen it reach the innermost circle of former President Trump's uh, people at the time, his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who came down to Cobb County and tried to access the GBI signature audit. He wasn't allowed in. Meadows was also on the infamous call with Brad Raffensperger, where Trump wanted to find votes. Sidney Powell was a lawyer that, you know, at one point, allegedly Trump was considering making her a special counsel dealing with election fraud. And so what we've seen this methodically being built in this investigation is really reaching into the heart of what happened post-2020 with a failed effort to overturn the election. Jim, jump in on this. Yeah, it, it's uh, it. it I, I think, as I said before, I think this is rather ex- extraordinary. You've got uh, not not just Mark Meadows uh, and Sidney Powell, but some uh, there. Uh, the grand jury is also seeking testimony. Some very some very important granular people, uh, uh, like uh, there's uh, uh, Trump campaign advisor uh, 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 Boris Epstein. Uh, you had. Uh, uh, Phil Walden, who was a, a Meadows contact and was deeply involved in 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 the cybersecurity thing, uh, we need to mention with 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 uh, with Sydney Sydney Powell, uh, there's there's a line to be drawn between her and uh, the 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 doings in Coffee County, where data from from elect, uh, from voting machines was was copied and and sent far and wide to all these all these uh, election skeptics. Uh, Maya, um, certainly the Department of Justice has made it clear that they have now launched a pretty significant investigation of uh, Donald Trump and others who attempted to overturn the election. But there are many people who still believe that it is in Fulton County, Georgia, where uh, Trump and some of his associates face the greatest legal risk in terms of the effort to overturn the election. Absolutely. And I think it's worth mentioning that this is also Georgia's largest and most heavily Democratic county. Um, And I'm looking at this really through the lens of the what do we have Uh, less than three months um, until the midterm election. There are a lot of politics swirling around this. And I think for the folks who are involved in this uh, or whose names have been mentioned in this investigation, one person that they're all thinking about, of course, is the former president and how he's going to respond. To, to this. Um, I mean, one person in particular, of course, being Brian Kemp and sort of this balancing act, I think, that he has had to uh, had to had to perform, um, knowing that, you know, he could be asked more questions about sort of this pressure campaign to try to get him to overturn the election, which would only further incriminate the former president and, for, and push uh, Kemp kind of even further into uh, this enemy corner um, if among the president and his associates. And I think he's not the only one who's sort of making this calculation here, trying to evade um, more of these questions. And again, even Stephen's point, we don't know everything here. We don't know the kinds of questions and what exactly is going to come of this. But um, even so, it's still, it's still given everybody, I think, uh, reason to just kind of be especially cautious in this moment. Karen, Maya gives us uh, the right opportunity to move over to what's happening with Brian Kemp and the subpoena that he was uh, issued to appear before the grand jury. Uh, The case was argued yesterday in Judge Robert McBurney's uh, Fulton County Courthouse. Robert McBurney has probably become the hardest working judge in Georgia because he's been dealing with a blizzard of these uh, cases since he oversees the activity of the special grand jury. The Kemp a team yesterday argued that a sovereign immunity uh, should protect uh, Brian Kemp from having to uh, testify. Um, and they've said, if that doesn't hold, we believe that even if uh, McBurney d- decides that Kemp has to testify, they've said it should be delayed until after uh, the election. Uh, Karen, we don't know what McBurney's going to do with that yet. 
but of course, the Fulton County DA's office fires back and says he he's a witness. We are he's not a target of our investigation. He had an opportunity to testify very peaceably a while back. He refused to do that, and uh, we think it's time he stepped forward. So I think in looking at all of this, one, the judge probably never dreamed he would be looking at a special grand jury and dealing with election of 2020 still, right? Um, and then the other piece of this is how political this conversation has become since mid-July between the governor's office and the Fulton County DA. So I think my understanding was that Governor Kemp would have been appearing to testify in the end of July, and then it got delayed, and then now we're into this August where he did not show up on the 18th, and motions were filed, and as you mentioned, he was he's um, claiming his sovereign immunity. I think the biggest point here, though, is it's taking away the campaigning for the governor's race. So the focus is really now on this kind of inside Atlanta, what's going on, and going back to 2020, and that whole narrative of the election, and it's looking back instead of forward. And so the candidates are not getting the airtime that they probably want in discussions of what they're going to do going forward. And so I think Mm -hmm. they're caught in this, like, Kemp's campaign is having to deal with the current situation of being called into witness, and he can't then be on the campaign trail and pivoting and talking about what's going on there. And also it's allowing, you know, Abrams to have a different type of rollout of messaging because she's got to um, hear what the narrative is in the media on on all of this kind of conversation that may be taking the oxygen out of really our midterm election conversations. Stephen? I think it's important to think about this, too, in that Brian Kemp's hands are tied in a lot of ways. Um, What we did here in the hearing yesterday was that there were considerations made to make sure that they didn't try to call Brian Kemp in during the primary and to see that they were going to, you know, accusations of maybe meddling with the Republican primary because he was facing a Trump-backed primary challenger. But really, anything that the governor does uh, and how it's skewed, especially because he would be testifying behind closed doors so nobody would know exactly what he'd say, exactly what questions are answered. The strategy that he's doing now is the best one for him politically, because if he goes before the grand jury and it gets out that he you know, testifies, even if he answers or whatever, he's trying to avoid angering Trump or really doing anything to be on Donald Trump's radar. Because if Brian Kemp goes and testifies to the special grand jury, answers all the questions honestly, we don't know what he's going to say. All it takes is one email from Trump Save America PAC or one person that doesn't like Brian Kemp whispering in Trump's ear. And then all of a sudden, instead of Trump being a minor factor in Kemp enjoying an advantageous lead where he can talk about the economy and things like that, we might have a completely different ball game if Donald Trump comes and you know says Brian Kemp's testifying against me. He's a loser. He's a fraud. He covered up the election fraud. So what Kemp is doing in trying to publicly push back against answering questions in front of the grand jury is doing a lot, I think, of stage managing of trying not to have the Trump wing of the party blow up in his face and really jeopardize what so far has been a very good campaign for him. Yeah, Maya, as you suggested, that that does seem to be a strategy that Stephen has now amplified upon. But one of the things I'd like to point out, Maya, is that uh, Brian McAvoy, who was arguing for uh, Kemp's not having to appear, at least at this point. He shared screenshots uh, with the judge of tweets by a tweet by uh, Stacey Abrams and then an appearance that she made on CNN in which she slammed the governor for trying to avoid testifying. And McAvoy uh, used those to suggest that this is all about politics. The governor is being smeared. And his, and his quote was, damned if we do, damned if we don't by Abrams, and I I think the Kemp attorneys believe that this is their way of uh, adding to their uh, evidence, their supposed evidence, that what Fonnie Willis is doing is uh, a a political witch hunt in the terms of some Republicans these days. 
And there I think you see the influence of this very, very busy political season on something that's supposed to be otherwise not exactly political. This is a legal matter, really, that we're talking about. And it reminds me of uh, just a few weeks ago, the same argument being made by Burt Jones and his campaign and folks around him that D.A. Willis hosted um, a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey and that in itself made her, you know, seem partisan or at least, um, you know, give them a reason to excuse Mr. Jones from from being able to testify. I see I see I see some real similarities here, essentially pointing out, you know, where Democrats have have also aimed to politicize this um, this investigation or at least make give, give the appearance um, of that. Jim. Yeah, if, if uh, uh, one one good thing about retirement is you can you can spend some time on YouTube watching watching legal arguments, uh, and 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 what I found striking about uh, yesterday's uh, court courtroom hearing was number one, uh, uh, Kemp's people uh, their number one argument is absolutist, it's, uh, as we refer to it as sovereign immunity, and Brian Kemp saying you, essentially you can't uh, I, I, this this court has no jurisdiction over me when it comes to giving testimony. Now, the judge uh, pointed out that uh, Attorney General Chris Carr and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, both elected, both, both, both independent uh, statewide actors, they had already agreed to it, uh, to, to, and they've given their testimony. Uh, Kemp, Kemp, uh, Kemp says, well, that was, that was, that was ch their choice. The, the fallback position, and, and it was very clearly uh, uh, stated, the, their fallback position is delay this, this, this testimony by 75 days till after the election. Uh, which which tells you exactly uh, which goes to Stephen's point that this is that that, that Kemp's f primary worry is uh, is a reaction from from Donald Trump. Uh, the, the attorneys also gave notice served notice that they intend to take whatever the, the, the absolutist argument that they're making. They intend to appeal that, which of course could delay it further. Um, the other thing I just want to point out, uh, we have listeners who, who enjoy a bit of irony every now and then. And, and, and <laughs> if, 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 if I could take you back almost four years to the, to the weekend uh, before the, the, the November election for governor, uh, Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who was also a candidate there, uh, publicly announced that he was putting the state Democratic Party under investigation for what he called computer hacking of 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 the state's uh, voter registration data. Uh, it you know it took years to determine, but that this was entirely spurious. But but we had we we uh, Kemp was not really that concerned about uh, an investigation affecting uh, election results uh, that, that during that period. Yeah, those who remember that know that it made big, big headlines. It was a sensational story right before the election, and it evaporated uh, relatively uh, quickly in the aftermath of the election. Karen, uh, Judge McBurney uh, doesn't buy this sovereign immunity argument. He made that clear yesterday. Um, and and I, I, I want to also read you a quote from McBurney. We don't know how he's going to rule, but he said this at one point. I want to be very clear. There's no suggestion that the governor or his office is connected to criminal activity, talking about the DA's investigation. I think if one were to summarize the theory of the investigation, the governor was almost the target of the targets. And so it would be victim of pressure to do things that were, would be the victim of pressure to do things that were improper post-election. Um, so he's, he's, he's not buying the sovereign immunity argument at all here. And I think in that quote, he's also very clearly saying that the governor is not the point person they're really trying to investigate in this criminal matter. They're trying to understand what President, former President Trump did. And I think a lot of that is related to how the conversations went between him and Kemp and then Donald Trump and others that were in elected office. I think it's very curious here why the governor doesn't want to just go ahead and put this behind him as other elected officials did, because that primary uh, win in May really showed how Republican voters backed Kemp and Raffensperger because they stood up against the kind of stealing of the election and the big lie that was 
produced. And so that's why the Trump candidates, the Trump backed Republican candidates did not win. And so it definitely is a curious position he is in right now. And I think it does go back to Stephen's point of he doesn't want to get the Trump voters in the base aggravated or upset if he, you know, something is leaked about what he does say about those conversations. I also would say at this point, it's We'll be curious to find out what the other Republican candidates on the um, ballot think about this move, because Kemp has a higher lead right now in polling over the Democrats. And can this affect conversations down ballot as to other candidates, you know, the Walker campaign, um, even Chris Carr, because he's already been involved, you know, kind of how they're seeing this play out um, as voters are going in to vote at the top of the ticket for the governor, but then down the ballot. Um, we should also point out that McBurney yesterday uh, had some comments to make about the uh, efforts of the uh, Republican fake electors who have continued to try to say that they should not have to uh, give testimony. Uh, and McBurney was tough on them, uh, Maya. Here's one of the things he said. He said, these electors have provided no evidence that the district attorney or any member of her staff has done anything that suggests a possible political motivation for investigating them beyond the banal observation that they are Republicans and she is not. And then he also found it ludicrous that one of the arguments that was made on behalf of those electors is that all she was, she was only looking at Republicans. And McBurney said, well, of course, because it's Republicans who are being accused of efforts to overturn the election. Uh, Maya, I don't think they're going to get very far with him. No, I don't think so either. And honestly, it underlines sort of the absurdity of the entire fake elector plan uh, conspiracy, however we might want to describe it. I mean, from the beginning, I think even the most conservative Republicans in Georgia, many found themselves extremely embarrassed by this, by this, (laughs) this. Uh, idea that someone would pretend to be a member of the Electoral College in order to get their 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 favorite candidate in office. And sort of from the beginning, this was obviously a very flawed operation um, at best. And I think, you know, it's, it's important to sort of underline that in legal terms as well, not just political ones. Stephen? And I think you, I mean, you also have to look at it too. You know, the, the DA's office so far has made very few public or private missteps with how they've conducted this investigation. The Burt Jones issue, where she gave money to Charlie Bailey and had a fundraiser for him, that was one of those missteps. But I think, and the judge very clearly rebuked her for that and said, what were you thinking? I don't know why you did this. But then uh, the argument of the other so-called fake electors said, us too. And he was very clearly not happy with that. Uh, I I think it also just goes to show that the order of information that we've seen come out of who's being subpoenaed and who's testified and what, and with each concurrent layer of things, what we're seeing is a very, very vast conspiracy that took place post-2020 election being methodically built out through these interviews and conversations and subpoenas that... The fake electors have been informed that they're targets of this investigation, mm-hmm. but the real targets are probably a little bit higher up the food chain. And if you're a target and you might want to talk, you might say, oh, well, this was the person who told me to do this. And this was the person who said on the Trump campaign they were putting this together. What we're seeing looks a lot like building some sort of racketeering case and saying that, yes, the 16 fake electors might have broken state laws. But we believe it's bigger than that, and there's more than that. And so it's unsurprising seeing the subpoenas, seeing the judge's ruling, seeing everything that we've seen so far, that this is not just a simple case of here's the one law that was broken by this one person, and this is the one thing that we're going to look at with potential charges. So, I mean, it's vast, it's a lot, but all of these twists and turns are building up to something bigger, I think. All right. All right, let's do this. Why don't we get the first break of the show out of the way? We have a lot more to talk about. By the way, I want to make one final comment. Jim Galloway mentioned the fact that um, Kemp's attorneys have said that if they don't get their way on this sovereign immunity argument, they plan to take it right to the state Supreme Court. What's interesting about that is they need McBurney to approve their going for immediate uh, 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 res- resolution of this at the state Supreme Court. So he plays a key role in how quickly that case can be appealed up 
the chain as well. Uh, we got a lot more to talk about on the show. We'll be back in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Jim Galloway, Karen Owen, Maya King, and Stephen Fowler join me for uh, today's show. Um, there's been a lot of activity around the issue of abortion rights uh, in the last uh, days, and uh, clearly uh, all of it is playing a role in the 2022 election cycle. There are those out there who now believe Democrats may be improving their chances to win congressional races uh, because of the abortion issue. Um, and Karen, I'll start with you on this, just one of the developments. Um, Pat Ryan, uh, a, a Democrat in a swing district, 19th Congressional District in New York, made abortion and uh, guns the two big, big issues in his campaign. And he really emphasized uh, choice as a crucial issue for voters. And he won, as a Democrat, that special election in a swing district, which is one of the reasons that Democrats are feeling some renewed hope. And Karen, you have the book. Special, on special elections. You've gone back and researched them over many, many years. Talk to us a little bit about what uh, it means that a Democrat uh, uh, won that race with a Democrat in the White House. So special elections, that is a book I co-authored with Dr. Bullock from UGA. And we did go back and look about, uh, we examined about 300 special elections. And special elections are very unique because they are a, an off term type cycle election. It's a rare event. Some run quickly with a short time frame. Others kind of can be a little bit longer in duration. But we're interested in special elections because we think they are kind of a bellwether and tell us what's going to happen. One, in partisan control of Congress. And two, if it's a punishment to the current president in office and his party. And so when we look at those special elections over time, we know that the party that typically holds that seat in Congress, if it's a Democratic-held seat, that 80% of the time that party is going to actually retain that seat. It's very rare that we see a, very, a flip in partisan control out of a special election. And that goes back to a lot of kind of incumbency and, and different advantages as how the district's been set up. We also know um, that a sitting president's party, so right now we're looking at Democratic president. Joe Biden, he's in his first term, so this is his first midterm, that a sitting pre president's party, um, uh, while it's common sometimes for partisan control to shift in a special election, the White House is usually the loser. So the president's party does get punished. But we are seeing something different, as you alluded to, with Pat Ryan in New York and how that he was able, as a Democrat, to hold on and do pretty well, and he's doing that on a, um, on a current type of issue. Now, if we look historically and see trends, I don't think the special elections are really a cue up that maybe the Democrats will hold Congress, right. but they may be able to retain a few seats or they can slice into that margin of victory or the vote share that the Republicans actually win. And their key may be those issues. It may be the abortion rights issue. That may be what can um, actually energize their base of voters. Um, thank you uh, uh, for that. And it is what's giving some Democrats some hope out there that the uh, midterms may not be quite as bad for uh, the House as uh, many have anticipated. Uh, Jim, let's look at another uh, development that has played into uh, abortion as an issue in the campaigns. Um, a Texas federal judge, James Hendricks, made a ruling uh, within the last week or so about an emergency order issued by HHS. And that emergency order essentially said that in a, even in a state like Texas, um, if, a, if a, a pregnant woman is experiencing a significant medical crisis, uh, that an abortion, that, that she could have an abortion um, overruling the Texas law on abortion right now. And uh, Judge Hendricks said, absolutely not. 
Um, even if the mother's life is at risk, if she has, has an ectopic, ectopic pregnancy, um, if she's suffering from severe hypertension, the life of the fetus is as important as the life of the mother. Now, an Idaho federal judge ruled just the opposite way on this HHS emergency order. But what happened in Texas is more fodder for the pro-choice people who feel that um, they are gaining an edge as uh, they look at the elections. Right. And, and, and look, this is, uh, curiously, we, we, we saw this uh, decades ago with the civil rights movement, where you had, where you had judges, local judges making different, uh, giving d different interpretations of federal law. Uh, that that represent uh, the, the the local politics, and you know you'd expect the Texas decision to be appealed. I'm assuming the Idaho one will be too, and and, and ultimately they get to the to to, to uh, up to the Supreme Court. One thing I'd like to just uh, if if I could build on what what Karen was saying just a little bit about the the shifting, uh, the, the the shifting attitude. I think, uh, and this this probably I'm sure this is going on in Texas and Georgia as well, is. Uh, you, you've got this interesting trend of, of a, a, a very serious uptick in the no, uptick in the number of uh, women registering to vote. You know, it's it's uh, uh, it is uh, I think in Kansas City in in Kansas uh, before the uh, before that uh, the referendum on on the constitutional amendment, seventy percent of, of of the new voters were women. Uh, in right now, there's a, there's a, there, there's there's some data out that shows that women are re represent are are registering uh, at maybe 55 percent of new voters, uh, where they had been registering just under 50 percent. Uh, that's going to have a, a, a big effect, uh, and and I I I, uh, I think that's those 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 new voters are who uh, Stacey Abrams is going to be targeting in Georgia for the gubernatorial race. Yeah, um, Stephen, this emergency order issued by HHS, of course, is all part of the Biden administration's effort, President Biden's efforts, to tell uh, uh, the American people we are doing everything we can to preserve the right to choice despite the overturning of Roe, despite the fact that there are states across country outlawing or severely restricting abortion. Um, so this is uh, clearly a part of that effort uh, uh, by the Biden uh, uh, folks to say we want to help in every way we can. And at least in Texas, the judge turned them back. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen throughout uh, really the Biden administration and the Trump administration as well is an incre increasing evolution in the relationship, uh, antagonistic or not, between the executive branch and the White House and Congress and state and local courts and legislatures, and really how our laws are made and who's doing them. And I think this battle over abortion, now that the Supreme Court has kicked the issues back down to the states, and uh, it's really, you're, you're really seeing these stark differences in people, also voters, paying more attention to who they're electing at the local level and at the congressional level to advocate for the laws and their positions, whether it's for abortion rights or against abortion rights. And so we're in this very interesting time right now where it's not necessarily spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks, but you're seeing the federal government and the Biden administration trying to do everything it can within its powers as the executive branch at the federal level to do things. And then you're also seeing that being knocked down by the well-entrenched Republican conservative courts in many parts of the country. And so, I mean, obviously this is not something that's going to be solved overnight or decided overnight, either with uh, more permanent decisions. I mean, in the Texas case, the judge declined to enjoin that emergency ruling nationwide. It was just focused on Texas. Yes. And so it's, it's just very interesting to see the shifting relationships between federal government and state government and the courts. And then I like these special elections are seeing, I think we're seeing a lot more people pay attention and that's how we're getting some of these more uh, closer elections and more maybe surprising election results because there's a lot of people tuning in. Um, Maya and then Karen, I'd love to get your take on, on the Texas ruling um, because whether people out there happen to believe uh, in choice or whether they feel abortion is wrong, there's a certain cruelty 
uh, to this notion that a woman who is facing a potentially life-threatening emergency, which HHS is uh, trying to uh, deal with, protect, uh, that a judge has said, well, we have to consider the life of the fetus uh, when listen, thinking about uh, also the life of the mother. It, it seems like a, a, a cruel kind of choice in some ways that a judge is suggesting is appropriate. And it's the, the interference there of, of the courts and of the state in, in a person's health care, um, and particularly in these cases that we're already hearing, you know, quite a bit of women who have become pregnant, have had serious complications with that pregnancy very early, and now are finding themselves um, really with their lives in danger. One, because of these laws now in place, and two, because of the overall sort of nervousness. That's a, a common theme among healthcare providers and professionals that they too could be prosecuted or punished for, for treating these abnormalities in someone's pregnancy. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the question also becomes how far does this reach? How much, how, how, you know, what are the, what is the extent of, of this kind of cruelty? And what does this mean now? Um, these have been all the questions, of course, after the court's ruling and even after the Roe v. Wade leak. Um, but I think it's it's now making everybody, men and women included, um, kind of zero in on, on these questions and figure out, you know, what, what this is going to mean. So her last point there, the idea that men and women across the country are now really looking into these issues because it has a, a, a direct effect. And they can see that to me as a political scientist and to every American, it should be a wake up of just civics understanding, right? Our constitution was founded on separations of power and federalism. And we are really seeing that play out right now. The federal Supreme Court pushed back to the state and to Congress to make laws, which is their Article One power to make laws. And then here in Texas, you're looking at the overreach, right, of executive orders where the president, through his administrative agency, is trying to determine laws and how they can be actually enforced, and then the court reacting to that. For me, as a political scientist, this is what I spend so many weeks of a semester trying to get students to understand our constitutional system and how this works. But it is very important, though, when we see this, as citizens, how we get involved in our voting process to determine that we're electing those individuals who are making our laws and they're responding to what we desire. And so in Texas, we will see probably a lot of messaging during the campaigns about what Texas as a state and the legislature are actually doing in laws to react to these types of situations. And I think it's just a lesson in all of that, that, you know, each law that is passed in America or even at a state like Georgia, it has an effect on people. And do we know what that effect is? And then how do we voice to make sure if it needs to be changed, because it's not what we desire, that we're actually proactively out there trying to find people to listen to us and, and actually be our delegates, react and, okay. and pass laws we want. I, no, I apologize for interrupting you at the end there, Karen. Um, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take a break now. But uh, abortion is certainly playing a role in at least a couple of Georgia uh, statewide races, certainly in the governor's race between uh, Abrams and Kemp, but also in the uh, race between uh, Jen Jordan and Chris Carr for attorney general. And when we come back, I want to take a look with Maya King at uh, what I thought was a terrific piece she wrote about how Stacey Abrams has evolved on the issue of abortion, uh, starting with her years as a student at Spelman College, if not uh, before. So we'll do that and a lot more in just a moment on Political Rewind. Times reporter Maya King, uh, late last week, uh, the Times published a piece you wrote uh, with a headline, Stacey Abrams' Personal Evolution on Abortion Rights. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about what you learned when you uh, 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 were putting that piece together. You point out that Abrams is the child of Methodist preachers uh, and that she once was a foe of abortion, but over a long period of time, 
uh, she evolved into the position she has now, which is that she believes choice is essential. Talk to us a little bit about all this. Sure. Um, so we, we spent a lot of time having conversations with um, not just uh, Leader Abrams, but folks who were in her political circle, some of her earlier mentors, and even folks who were with her, women who studied alongside her at Spelman College. And oh, what a lot of them said is, you know, Stacy was in many ways a product of her environment obviously extremely thoughtful and smart, sort of introverted in her approach to policy and how she thought about issues, but also um, someone who grew up in a deeply religious, deep South household at a time when um, abortion was either not really discussed very widely, and when it was, particularly in these sort of religious and moral terms, it was uh, condemned very widely. And so Abrams then, as a teenager, in conversations with a friend who was considering having an abortion, said to her, you know, I don't think this is a choice that you should make, carried those thoughts also with her to, uh, through undergrad and even into some of her earlier professional experiences, where it became, though, an evolution at that point, not just from, I think this is morally wrong, to just before she began uh, considering running for office, saying, this is just something that makes me feel uncomfortable, declaring myself, quote unquote, pro-choice, is not something I'm ready yet uh, to say, which was something that she told me she was thinking about um, when she joined the, the Georgia win list just before she ran for, for office for the first time um, in the early 2000s. And of course, we all know that Abrams is very policy focused and, and writes quite a bit. And it was not until she wrote an essay for herself that she then decided that she would declare herself pro-choice in a way, though, that I think is very interesting, in a way that she has tried to describe to voters to say, I understand where you're coming from, which is perhaps abortion is not an option that I would choose for myself. Maybe it's not something that I would, that I would like. However, it's not my role, um, nor is it something that I would want to do to say just because I feel uncomfortable with this, that other people who are considering abortion should not have access to that procedure. So there are a few things I'd love to unpack with the panel about your article. One of them is um, you write about the very thoughtful, apparently, conversations she had when she was a student at Spelman, a good friend of hers at Spelman, uh, interned at Planned Parenthood. And uh, uh, Abrams talks about the fact that um, these were intense discussions about whether choice was correct or not. And, and you quote her as saying, uh, that was the first time I had given really careful consideration to what for me had been a reflexive belief as opposed to an intentional belief, uh, she said, saying that abortion was not yet something she had fully thought through and decided. Um, so um, let me just ask you, and then I want to get the rest of the panel in here. Um, we, we often accuse candidates of flip-flopping for political convenience. But it seems clear that Stacey Abrams' evolution in this area did have some, there was politics in mind when, when Melita Easters approached her, the Windlet list, you know, about her working. She had to think about choice in a more uh, uh, open way. Uh, but there's clearly thought behind this. It's not just a convenient flip-flop. Absolutely. I think when, when Ms. Easters finally approached her was when she knew that she had to make the decision of where she really fell on this issue. But before that, I mean, I'll note two things. One, Spelman College is a, a college that was founded, I believe, by the Baptist Church. It's a, it has Christian roots. And so at that time, there was a very vocal faction of the student body, many young women who were vehemently anti-abortion. Stacy was not really a part of that group. She was more willing to have the conversation. But the environment around abortion among those who were opposed to it was sort of this immediate no answer. And, and the second thing, too, is that this was the, the early 90s, and it was also a time when, you know, folks really were not necessarily that concerned yet about their rights to having an abortion being completely um, wiped away. You know, Roe v. Wade was not in the kind of danger in 1992 and 93 that it was and, and is now in 2022, where, you know, it doesn't quite exist. So these were conversations sort of had in the hypothetical um, when she was an undergrad, sort of these traditional, very thoughtful college, I'm learning new things type conversations. 
And I think that's important, you know, when we're talking about her evolution, because again, when we get, you know, later into her professional career, it becomes not just I'm having these conversations because I'm really thinking about it, but now I really have to make a decision on where I fall on this because people want an answer from me. Karen? So Jim can correct me here, but she made the statement that Leader Abrams was in at Spelman during the early 90s. And this would have been around the time Ralph Reed in Georgia was making a big move. Right, Jim? Is that the timing when he was running for lieutenant governor? uh, No, no. It's a little bit later. Uh, He ran for governor in 2006. Okay. So I just remember he originally, I think, ran for lieutenant governor. And I knew that there was some movement in that early 90s in the state related to the abortion issue. So it would not have been, what I guess, it would not have been out of place for individuals at Spelman to be in this conversation on abortion rights or pro-choice or anti-abortion. So she was in that kind of sphere here in Georgia where conversations were going on for certain. I think interesting, and and the article points this out in the title, it's the evolution. It's not a flip-flop. It's not she had a position at one time strongly and then switched quickly, right? That but the evolution of thought, thinking through these things and how um, she was experiencing through others, right? Learning from others what they were discussing and having those conversations and then trying to find what was right for her in those choices. And it's interesting that that's what we would want more of our politicians to think about on so many issues, right? If they need to evolve that they're having conversations with others so that they can definitely think intentionally about why they believe what they believe, but it's not just a reflexive piece to come into, oh, I am this person, but why I'm truly this person, and there's principled in that discussion and thought behind it. Jim? Yeah, uh, uh, Karen, just just FYI, uh, Reed was chairman of the state party in the late late, uh, late 90s. So that that may have been what, what you were what you were uh, of the state GOP when you that, that may have been what you were thinking of. This also the, the, the this evolution of, of Abrams in the 90s, you have to remember, also occurred during the Clinton years. And during the Clinton years, of course, uh, uh, his his approach to 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 abortion and and and, and uh, it was kind of uh, echoed by by Hillary Clinton during her, his campaign was that abortion should be should be uh, both both safe and rare, and 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 so there was there was there was a, a an attempt to find a middle ground, just uh, uh, to Karen's point, academically because because Roe v. Wade was 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 the law of the land. Uh, I think this, uh, but I think this this evolution does give Abrams. Uh, a, a, a better ability to reach out to say Republican women, who 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 are upset at 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 uh, at what the Supreme Court uh, did in June, uh, because it's not a it's, it's you know it's 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 not an absolutist position. It, it, uh, you, you can you can uh, you can you can I'm not saying she she is finessing it, but I th- I think there's a great deal of empathy that can be that that can be uh, drawn on. Stephen, I thought another aspect of Maya's article, uh, which was fascinating, is that Abrams um, acknowledged that sometimes going into African-American groups um, and, and, and Hispanic groups, uh, people are uncomfortable about talking about the issue of abortion. They just as soon avoid it. And Abrams has decided to confront it directly. She does talk about it. She does tell them about her personal journey, about the evolution, and she says, as Jim just did, that while you may not want to choose abortion for yourself, the right to uh, individual freedom is really essential here. And so she's bringing the topic to groups, as Maya points out, that don't necessarily want to talk about it directly. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, like Jim mentioned, that like, So much in politics right now is absolutist. You're either for this or against this. And with the topic of abortion, and especially as Maya does such a good job of laying out, there are a wide range of views in Georgia across the ideological spectrum on abortion and what people's personal views are versus what they think the government should allow and things like that. And it doesn't neatly line up with what you would think typical party or demographic lines would be. And so... Abrams' approach to this and uh, both her personal approach and how she's using this in the campaign is taking an issue that is often treated as absolutist 
and creating a lot of space for people to engage with it and engage with her campaign views on it in a way that is a lot more of a big tent idea about this. You know, Georgia is not a monolith with its politics. Voters of color are not a monolith with their politics. And so there are plenty of conservative, democratic, rural black voters that have different views on abortion than what you might hear from some of the more progressive, louder, mainstream voices in Atlanta and other uh, bastions of the party. And so uh, Abrams is not changing her message to reach these voters and conservative more socially conservative Hispanic voters or people like that. But what she's doing is acknowledging that uh, I think she's still staying true to her beliefs and what she believes she would do as governor, but engaging it in a way where it's a lot more accessible to people than, you know, a lot of the messaging is like, oh, Democrats want abortion all the way up until birth and things like that. It's a much more authentic way of having the conversation and really gives a lot more people permission to support Abrams and engage with the views than you would maybe see from other Democratic politicians. So, uh, Maya, as the author of this piece, you've heard what the other panelists had to say. Give us your final thoughts uh, on this whole subject. Well, I think it's, it's you know, this is we've, we've mentioned over and over that this is going to be one of the deciding issues of, of the election, not just in Georgia, but across the country. And I think the Abrams campaign has certainly made that calculation. I'll note that in 2018, she did not discuss her past opposition to abortion nearly as widely. And now, of course, in light of these recent developments, has sort of made that a centerpiece um, of her campaign. I think we can expect to continue to hear that from her, to continue to see these listening sessions that she's been doing with women, particularly white, moderate, conservative women in Atlanta suburbs. These were the people who have really decided elections in Georgia in the past. They're the ones who've been very vocal about their displeasure with democratic politics. And now they're the ones, though, that could be, at least in a, in a meaningful way, saying, I have a lot of frustrations with Democrats this year, but one thing I don't want taken away is, is my right to, to, to health care, really, in this case. Jim, you got a quick final comment on this? Uh, all I would say is, is, is that uh, we've talked a lot about Stacey Abrams, but you haven't heard very much from, from Governor Brian Kemp on the issue of, of abortion since June. And I think that is telling. He celebrated uh, the Roe v. Wade overturning, uh, but has, as you say, been very quiet about it ever since then. By the way, um, uh, uh, Melita Easters will be one of the panelists on our show on uh, Monday. It'll be interesting to hear from her point of view. Uh, uh, Maya interviewed her for her story, but we'll talk to her a little bit more about this evolution. Uh, and uh, Edward Lindsay, uh, the Republican, will be on with her, too. So uh, we'll have a good balanced conversation about that and a lot more uh, when we return on Monday. We're completely out of time uh, for today's show. Uh, thank you for a wonderful conversation. Karen Owen, Stephen Fowler, Battleground Ballot Box, I got it right. Maya King and Jim Galloway. I hope you all have a great weekend. Thanks to my team at Political Rewind for all you've done to make this week a success. Um, until Monday, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.